Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Yeah, we've come to the end of the liturgical season telling the Jesus story through the calendar, and we start over uh, next Sunday anticipating the birth. But today's sort of a crescendo of the culmination of the whole gospel story, and it ends with the announcement that Jesus is Lord, Christ is King. Somebody say amen. And so today I'm also going to uh, finish up, this is going to be the fourth and final sermon before we go into Advent themes next Sunday. This is the fourth and final Sunday that I'm going to preach from some of the themes that are found in When Everything's on Fire. And today I'm preaching the theme of the final chapter, chapter 11. It's entitled The House of Love. John chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. In 1425, Andrei Rublev, a Russian monk and iconographer, created what would become perhaps the most famous icon in history, the hospitality of Abraham, better known as the Trinity. On one level, it's a depiction of the three angels that dined with Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. But on a deeper level, it's a depiction of the Trinity. Rublev painted this icon during a time of political turmoil in Russia. He wanted meditation on the icon to help his fellow monks to keep their hearts fixed on God and thus keep their soul at peace. In the icon, the Trinity is seated at a four-sided table with the side nearest the viewer open. It, in fact, is an invitation to join the Trinity in their fellowship of divine love. Now, Henri Nguyen... Uh, Nowen talks about uh, the house of love in his book on icons. It's a wonderful little book. And Nowen describes Rublev's trinity as the house of love. So maybe, maybe just go ahead and leave that up there while I read them. Just kind of look at this picture, this icon. And here's what Nowen says. To live in the world without belonging to the world summarizes the essence of the spiritual life. The spiritual life keeps us aware that our true house is not the house of fear in which the powers of hatred and violence rule, but the house of love where God resides. Hardly a day passes in our lives without our experience of inner or outer fears, anxieties, apprehensions, and preoccupations. These dark powers have pervaded every part of our world to such a degree that we can never really escape them. Still, It is possible not to belong to these powers, 
not to build our dwelling place among them, but to choose the house of love as our home. This choice is made not just once and for all, but by living a spiritual life, praying at all times, and thus breathing God's breath. Through the spiritual life, we gradually move from the house of fear to the house of love. Now, remember, Rublev created his house of love icon in a particular historical context. He had a reason for why he was doing this. It just didn't come out of nowhere. The purpose of the icon was to help his fellow monks overcome political hate. I don't know if you know this, but people get into politics and they can actually hate one another. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, well, there, there, in 1425, there was, a, there was a civil war brewing in, in Russia. There was a dispute over who was to be the next czar. And you had the supporters of Vasily II... And you had the supporters of Yuri Dmitrievich. And each side was not budging. And you had the, I don't know, you had the, the, the Vasilycrats and the Dmitri of Republicans or whatever. I don't know what they were. But they were, you know. And, and, and from our historical distance, and we don't know about it, you know, we say, who cares? I mean, these, these, are, these are Christians. These are people that, that confess that Christ is king. Who cares whether it's Vasily or Dmitrievich? Well, you know how that happens, people end up not only caring, but they end up hating those that don't agree with their opinion. And so Rublev knew it would be easy for his brothers in the monastery there to take sides in the house of hate. So the icon is an invitation to Rublev's brothers to take up residence in the house of love. So that's, that's why he creates that. He's saying to his fellow monks, come, come, let's sit at the table in the house of love with the Holy Trinity and not take residence in the house of fear, the house of hate. Now, today, in our present moment, it's not 1425, it's 2021. And today, everything seems to be on fire with fear, hate, and violence. And the temptation is then to become reactive. To hate the hate, to fear the fear, and to react violently to the violence. Because, if we're not careful, we'll think, well, our fear is warranted. And our hate is righteous and our violence is justified well this is this is the devil handing out cans of gasoline to the city to the citizens in a city on fire you know if you say, oh, there's there, there's hate out there so i'm going to hate the haters <laughs> and well you're just adding gasoline to the devil's fire the pathologies that have sickened our society are bred in the house of fear what happens is we fear that we're going to lose out. We're going to lose something. The things aren't going to be right in the world. Things aren't going to be right with us. And so we're in the house of fear, and that's where hatred is bred. The master of the house of fear, of course, is the devil. Hebrews talks about how the devil keeps people in bondage through the fear of death. That is the fear of loss, right? So the temptation is that we're just going to allow the devil to uh, direct how we feel. We're going to fear the fear, hate the hate, and we're going to react with violence to violence. And so the, the occupants of the, of the... The Bible says that fear hath torment, right? And so the occupants, the occupants in the uh, 
torturer's house of fear often themselves become cruel people. In the house of fear, identity politics pushes people to the cruel edges. Because once you sign up for a particular ism, you're only afraid of criticism from those within your own ism. And so you end up going further and further and further into the absurd and cruel edges. And the solution to that, I want you to hear me correctly, everybody. The solution isn't, as some would you know, maybe want to lob this accusation, the solution is not moderation or centrism or middle-of-the-roadism or whateverism. The solution is a new residence. You've got to move out of the house of fear and take up residence in the house of love. Somebody say amen. Through a spiritual life that aspires to transcend the world as it is, we gradually change our residence from the cruel house of fear to the peaceable house of love. It doesn't happen all at once. It's not easy, but it is possible. This is the purpose of spiritual formation. This is the goal of contemplative prayer, is to change our residence. To live, not just visit once a week, but live in the house of love. When everything is on fire, our refuge is the house of love. A house that is impermeable to the flames of fear, hatred, and violence. This doesn't mean that we are unaffected by the fires raging in our society. But it does mean that it's possible for our inner self to remain untouched by the fires of hell. Listen to what Jesus says. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. You hear Jesus say, when your heart's troubled, when you're disturbed, when you're bothered about something, believe in God. Believe in God. I, I believe in, you know why I believe in God? The name, number one reason I believe in God is because Jesus does. <laughs> Jesus is my everything. Jesus says, believe in God. I say, all right, I will. Now, now, if we respond to that which is troubling, that which is disturbing by saying, believe in God, somebody's going to come along and say, well, that's just a crutch. I say it's a whole lot more than a crutch. It's a castle. It's a high rock. It's a, it's a mighty tower. It's a mighty fortress. It's a bulwark never failing. I, I, I don't just have a limp, you know. I'm, I, I need more safety than that. So I believe in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Because Jesus is the definition of who God is. We don't start and say, oh, I already know what God is. God is the amalgamation of all the omnis. Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, all of that. And Jesus is one of those. No. No, we don't know. And that's why Jesus comes. That's why the word becomes flesh. So that we can finally know what God is like. Later on in this very discourse, here in chapter 14 of John... Philip says, show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus says, oh, come on, Philip. Have I been with you so long? Don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Jesus is the perfect revelation of who the Father is. He goes on in verse 2 and says, In my Father's house there are many dwelling places, many rooms, many mansions, whatever translation you like. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus, in effect, is saying there's plenty of room in the Father's house. No one needs to be excluded. Invite everybody because the Father's house is a big 
house. There's plenty of room. It won't be overcrowded. And so that is our task. First of all, to be those that actually change residence from the house of fear to living in the house of love. And then hate goes away because really hate is just the mask that fear wears to make itself look tough. And the hate finally falls away because you're not afraid anymore. I mean, take fear off the table and how many enemies do you really have? So we've moved out of the house of fear. We're not afraid anymore. And we take up residence in the house of love. That's our first task. That's the goal of the spiritual life. That's why we pray. That's why we do these things. We're not, we're not praying simply you know, to attain merit with God because it doesn't work that way at all. We're praying because by prayer is how we change our residence. How we begin to live in a permanent basis in the house of love. And so that, that's our first task. But then as we establish residence in the house of love, we begin to invite others to join us. Others to join us. And of course, you can't do that out of anger. You can't do that out of rage. You can't do that out of hate. I mean, people living in the house of fear, they're going to be messed up. They're going to be cruel. They're going to be unreasonable at times. But if you just try to shame them for being cruel and mean and unreasonable they're going to just stay there in that house. We have to go as ambassadors of love in the name of Jesus and gently invite people into a new residence in the house of love. And our hope is that the house of fear will be abandoned, left vacant, and finally demolished. That's our hope. And how can it be otherwise? If we are truly loved by God, how many of you believe that everybody's truly loved by God? If we're truly loved by God, everything's going to be all right. If we are truly loved by God, we can afford to trust and not fight. If we are truly loved by God, we can abandon the house of fear. If we're truly loved by God, we can live in the house of love here and now. This is what I believe. I believe in God. I really do. I believe this. And it's not, by the way, it's not a careless slide into easy believism. So the world has real problems, and all you're saying is believe in God. That's, this is the work of God, Jesus said. They said, what must we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe. That you believe. I believe in God, and it's not easy believism. It's actually the hard-won fruits of the struggle to maintain faith and allow it to grow in my life. I believe in God. Not easy believism. And once faith has won the day or at least gained a foothold, then we are free to live in hope and dream dreams. I dream of a church that is a house of love, a city of refuge, a shelter from the storm. The beleaguered souls of our dreary world desperately need a shelter from the storm. And yes, I cannot talk about shelter from the storm without dropping Dylan lines, but I'm going to have to do it. I was burned out from exhaustion, buried in the hail, poisoned in the bushes, blown out on the trail, hunted like a crocodile, ravaged in the court. I don't even know what that means exactly, but it sounds bad. Come in, she said, I'll give you a shelter from the storm. Who's she? That's a church. I've heard newborn babies wailing like a morning dove. I've seen old men with broken teeth stranded without love. Do I understand your question, man? Is it hopeless and forlorn? Come in, she said. I'll give you shelter from the storm. I dream of churches that are like that. 
Our churches are not a place to further culture wars. Dear Lord in heaven, people don't need that. It's a shelter from the storm. It's not a combat zone. It's a, it's a place of peace. It's a place of grace. It's a place of love. I dream of a church that's like that. I dream of a church that is a pioneer in the way of peace and never again a chaplain to the masters of war. The greatest, the greatest, the greatest infidelity of the church in its 2,000 year history has been to serve the masters of war. The future of the church is found in its primal past of renouncing war and waging peace. I dream of a church like that. I dream of a church that excels in contemplative practices and contemplative stances. Instead of culture war Christians, we need contemplative Christians because the goal of contemplation is to be able to hold all things together in love. To silence the war within and to become those that can carry peace everywhere we go. But if we're going to be if we're going to be agents of peace, if we're going to be, bring, if we're going to be those that bring peace, we, we have to have peace established within us. The church will gain a new hearing if the wider world believes we know something about how to achieve peace in the soul. Not as a program, not as, you know, some sort of marketing campaign. But if people come to believe that the church is a repository for those kind of ancient treasures where you can deal wisely with your soul until it comes into a place of peace, then people will want to come and they'll want to learn and they'll be interested. I was teaching in a seminary a few years ago in California and during lunch I overheard a conversation between some of the seminarians. There was this girl, she was working her way through seminary, working at Starbucks, and she said, I told my colleagues where I work that I'm getting ready to go on a three-day silence retreat, and we have to turn in our phones. And my colleague said, three days without your phone? I could never do that. Three days without your phone? I think I need to do that. Three days without your phone, I want to do that. But we have to be those that really are established in these practices. Not just using it as a lure, as an advertising jingle. We have to be those that actually possess that. And then people will want to come. I dream of a church like that. I dream of a church... That is at home in God's good world instead of huddled anxiously at the departure gate. The Christian eschatological hope is ultimately not we're going to heaven, but that heaven's coming to earth. Yeah, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's just not the end of the story. <laughs> to be absent from the body is present with the Lord, but that's not where the story ends. The story ends with New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. As a bride adorned for her husband and the restoration of all things. We're not trying to escape. We're trying to bring heaven to earth. I dream of a church 
in which faith and science are not at odds. Faith seeking understanding, as Anselm said. The church hasn't always been good at this. In 1633, Galileo was accused of vehement heresy. He was accused of vehement heresy. What was his heresy? Helocentrism. He dared to agree with Copernicus that, in fact, the earth is revolving around the sun, not the other way around. And they accused him of vehement heresy and threatened him with torture. And he said, okay, well, I'll change my mind. And that becomes, because why did the church do that? Well, because of a lot of reasons. Their fixation with power and control, that was part of the problem. But then they just naively, the church just naively thought that, um, well, if it turns out that the earth revolves around the sun, then the Bible is somehow proven false and Christian faith will fail. <laughs> I don't know if you know this. If, I hate to be a spoiler here, but the earth does revolve around the sun. And it didn't destroy Christian faith. In fact, I don't know if this is provocative, but I've said it for years and nobody seemed to get too upset. I don't know of any major peer-reviewed scientific theory that is any threat to my faith. And so I dream of a church in which faith and science are not at odds. Ultimately, the theologians and the scientists are studying the same thing, and all truth is God's truth. They're just climbing different sides of the mountain, and someday they'll meet at the summit. I dream of a church that is conservative because wisdom, because, well, there's a typo there, because wisdom traditions are worth preserving. I dream of a church that is conservative because wisdom traditions are worth preserving. Christianity is a received faith. We don't get to make it up. It comes down to us from a, a very distant past. That's why we confess the creeds and give privilege to apostolic understanding and even pay attention to what the church fathers said. I, I dream of a church that is conservative because wisdom traditions are worth preserving. Christianity remains a living faith as long as it remains rooted in its ancient soil. I dream of a church that is progressive because the journey is ongoing. All that needs to be said about God revealed in Christ has not yet been said. Jesus, in fact, says in John 16, verse 12, I have many other things to, you, to say to you, but you're not ready for them. You can't bear them right now, but don't worry. When the spirit of truth comes, the spirit will, over time, lead you into all truth. So I believe in a church that's conservative because there's wisdom traditions worth preserving. I believe in a church that is progressive because the journey's ongoing and you're not going to get me to sign an allegiance to one camp or another. I'll live in both. I'll live in both. I need the whole body of Christ. I do. I dream of a church that is a viable alternative to soulless secularism. Secularism basically is the philosophy that there is nothing truly ontologically sacred that we might convey a sense of sacred upon something but the sacred doesn't really exist that's secularism and yet yearning for the sacred is part of what it means to be human you can try to dampen that desire but you cannot extinguish it the church 
in a secular age does not need to fight secularism, should not fight secularism. That would be a mistake, trying to fight it. We're not called to fight anything. No, we're not going to fight that. But what the church needs to be is an alternative to it. We need churches that are places where people can encounter the sacred. We confess that every, every Sunday morning at the beginning of our service. We are not here to be entertained. We're here to do what? Encounter the sacred. We need churches that are less pragmatic and more sacramental. I dream of a church in which my grandchildren's grandchildren learn to love and follow Jesus. I'm playing the long game here, folks. I'm not just in this for myself. It's doubtful that my grandchildren's grandchildren will know my name. I mean, how many of you can name the names of your great-great-grandparents? It's doubtful that my grandchildren's grandchildren will know my name, but I want to leave them a gift anyway. I find hope in the antiquity of the church. So I dream that maybe we're still the early church. Selah. Maybe you just need to be patient. Maybe God is playing the long game too. Because, oh, the church is so messed up. Maybe the church is just an adolescent. All adolescents are messed up. Give them time. You didn't stay as goofy as you were when you were 14. I dream that maybe we still are the early church. Maybe we're just the adolescent church. Give us time. I dream that the church of the distant future will kindly forgive our faults for we too are people of our time. You know, it's very easy for us to look back at church at other times and say, how could they believe, why those people, those knuckleheads? Are we so sure that we don't have our own blind spots? You say, what are they? I don't know, that's the point. It's hard to know what you don't know. I think of it like this though. I do know that from our vantage point, it's very easy for us to look at certain aspects of the medieval church, a church, let's say, a thousand years ago, and say they were so superstitious. Maybe some truth in that. But I do wonder if a church a thousand years from now looks back on this church of late modernity and says, they were so secular. They hardly believed anything. I wonder. And finally, I dream of a church in the distant future using technology I can't imagine, but still practicing sacraments I immediately recognize. I mean, just the church of the catacombs could not imagine the technology that we casually employ today. I mean, how are we going to imagine the technology available to the church a thousand years from now? I mean, are you going to try to talk to the church? Explain to the church in the catacombs in the year 200 about how we gather in one moment as Word Alive Church with people all over the world and nobody travels. <laughs> but we still do gather in the same moment. You, they'd say, how do you do that? i said, say, well, it's, it's the internet. The what? Never mind. But we do. And yet, when we come to this table today, when we baptize people here in a few minutes, the church and the catacombs will go, oh, I do know about that. 
I do recognize that. And so I dream of a church in the distant future with using technology I can't imagine, but still practicing sacraments. I immediately recognize these are the sacraments that bind us together across the ages. Amen. So stand up with me. And today we, we get, we have double sacraments today. In that we come to the table of the Lord as we always do, but today we're also baptizing people. And so those that are to be baptized and if they're children, their parents and all, would you, would you make your way down here? Right here where, where Pastor Derek is at the front. And I always like for us to just give them a, an applause as they come. Mm-hmm. A lot of things have changed for the church over 2,000 years. But baptism is still the same. I don't know that they had, you know, fancy baptistries like ours that are heated and all that. Although I've, I've seen ancient baptistries. I don't think they were heated, though. Too bad for them. But we're going to baptize people today, and I love that. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to, as we always do, confess the Apostles' Creed, which was born nearly 2,000 years ago as what people would say as they were about to be baptized. That's where, that's, that's where, now, they said it in Greek or Latin. They didn't say it in English because English didn't exist then. But English came along eventually. And we started saying in English what they've been. We're, so we're, you see how that ties us together with this ancient faith. And so we're going to confess our creed and then confess our sins and receive forgiveness. And then, and then we will partake of communion. We'll, Perry and I will serve you. And then, and then you'll be taken to get ready for baptism. And I'll meet you up there. And it's, it's a great day when we both have Eucharist and baptism. Say amen. All right. So join with me. And join with these as we confess our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now let's confess our sins and receive the Lord's forgiveness. Most merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table.
not of the church, but of the Lord. It's the Lord's table. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. 